This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. A race can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. A crazy case and EKG gone wrong. I have nothing to disclose. Here's my objective. So we're going to start with a 51-year-old female who presents to an ED about 40 miles from your nearest tertiary care center. Five hours prior to presentation, she ingested approximately six tablets of one of her medications, but EMS did not grab her medication bottles prior to transport. The current affinity agent is unknown, but her home medication includes oxycodone, carvedilol, lisinopril, amitriptyline, and gabapentin. She arrives to your ED, confused, combative, vital signs of a blood pressure around 90s over 60s, heart rate of 130s, respiratory rate of 23, temperature of 37.4. You have your labs there for you, just so you can take a quick look at that, what you're thinking. You feel like you're back to taking the BCE and P exam. And you get an EKG. This is what you see. Sorry, I removed the what the writing is on top, which is my normal EKG interpretation. <laughs> All right, everybody get a good look at that. What toxicity is this patient exhibiting? Cool, I'm done. <laughs> Just kidding. Hey, oh, fair. Yeah. TCA, good job. So basically, TCA toxicity, most likely this patient is her symptoms are secondary to amitriptyline. Things you can see with TCAs is that it has multiple effects on multiple receptors. You have alpha receptor antagonism, which is where you can see the marked hypertension secondary to the peripheral vasodilation. But one of the more hallmark things we do see in, with these patients is the fact that it is a sodium channel blocker. And so what happens when that occurs is it prevents that rapid ventricular depolarization and you have prolongation of your QRS interval, as well as you can see this tall R wave in the ABR, and that has to do secondary to the access deviation in that lead. If you want to go in further detail, there's multiple things on YouTube by this man that can discuss that. We don't have time today. <laughs> um, it also can induce seizures secondary to this blockade. You also can have its effects on the uh, muscarinic receptors, which will cause signs that are representative of anticholinergic toxicity, such as delirium, agitation, and tachycardia. It also has GABA receptor blockade, which also can potentiate seizures. And then it has inhibition of catecholamine reuptake. So we have a lot of things going on. So what does the EKG tell us? So can anybody tell me historically what we have used as a hallmark sign of severe toxicity for TCAs? The QRS widening. So that's things that I remember way back in the day. I say about 10 years ago, it's longer than 10 years. We're not going to do the math. When I was learning all this stuff, and that's what I remember, it was QT prolongation. Don't ever say that word. It's QRS widening, all those types of things. And the magical number was 100 milliseconds. Okay. So looking at that literature, um, basically what we've, we have different studies out there that looked at this from the 1980s into the 1990s. So the first one is Boner and colleagues. They did a prospective study and they found that patients who had a QRS greater than hundred milliseconds, that patients were more likely to develop seizures and arrhythmias, specifically in that subgroup where the QRS was greater than 160. These patients were more likely to develop those arrhythmias that you are concerned about with CCAs. 
Dana and colleagues also studied patients with a mean maximal cure aspiration of 145 milliseconds after um, ingestion of TCAs. And they also found that patients, 45% uh, of patients developed seizures and 27% developed arrhythmias. A retrospective analysis was conducted by Folk and colleagues, and, and they found no significant difference in the rate of, of occurrence of ventricular arrhythmias or seizures when compared between the less than 100 milliseconds and the greater than 100 millisecond group. So really, if you look at these studies, if you look at the three studies in the whole, they did have different methods um, with they measure the QR duration. So Berhert and colleagues uh, used limb leads, whereas the other two used uh, 12 leads. So this could be an exaggerated specificity, which is why it's come into question whether this is truly a good indicator for us to determine severity of toxicity. There was also a study that came out by Buckley and colleagues that they had um, three toxicologists determine how to agree if the patient had prolonged QRS duration, and they disagreed in 20% of cases. So that goes to show that even people who are trained to evaluate this don't always agree what if the patient is truly exhibiting QRS prolongation. So this leads us to right axis deviation. We also have some studies out there as well that has evaluated what we classically call uh, the R wave and the AVR. So Cavardi and colleagues had patients with TCA poisonings, and they noted that patients, significantly more patients with rightward shift in the major toxicity group. Lee Bell and colleagues also studied patients with TCA poisoning within 24 hours of ingestion. And they noticed that there was a risk factor for seizure arrhythmias when the R wave and the AVR was greater than three millimeters. And this was shown to have a 43% positive predictive value, whereas the QRS interval had a 35% positive predictive value. When they did a regression analysis for both seizure and arrhythmia, the R wave and the AVR was the only significant factor. And then Buckley and Pop colleagues did a case control study, and then they looked at the RS ratio in an AVR, and if it was greater than 0.7, it was a better predictive predictor of arrhythmia. So it just goes to show that looking at that AVR lead is more of a prognostic factor for us to determine whether a patient has more severe toxicity or the concerns that we would have with these patients. Um, patients also presenting with an R wave and the AVR greater than three millimeters are at a high risk for severe, serious arrhythmias or seizures. So knowing all that and the patient does have an R wave, how would you manage this patient? On it. See, I just sit down. Yes. So you would start with supportive care. Can't help it. We have to do the whole ABCs. You would do your IV access, all of those types of things. Patient has hypotension. You would still start with IV crystalloid fluids. But our main uh, player here is going to be bicarb. And you want to aim for a pH of 7.55. If the patient's intubated, you can use mechanical ventilation to also control pH. Um, if also you feel comfortable of time of ingestion, you can consider activated charcoal. It is effective. And then lipid emulsion and ECMO has been reported as possible options as well. For hypotension management, if they don't respond to IV crystalloid therapy, there is. Um, Agents that are listed out there, obviously, you know, with our literature, we have limited literature, but it is suggested that our main player of use is going to be norepinephrine. Um, it has been reported in multiple studies, and it's effective secondary to the fact that you don't, the patient, remember it has, uh, TCAs have the inhibition of catecholamines, 
So it is proposed that you would not want to use an agent like dopamine because that patient's already depleted and we need the release of norepinephrine. So it's not postulated to be as effective. So that's why norepinephrine has kind of become our main player here. One thing to also consider is if you know your patient has a decreased ejection fraction is that you might need that inotropic support too. So this may be a time where you make epinephrine be your first line vasopressor. That way you can also get cardiac and peripheral um, support for the patient. And then lastly, you can also consider dobutamine if you need further inotropic support. So should we give physostigmine? Somebody's making it in their basement? <laughs> okay. So here's the questions. When does it clinically make sense? So we really think of this as the patient severely agitated, aggressive patient without cardiac conduction disturbances, risk of seizures, unknown co-ingestion. So for our patient, no, we would not consider it. Um, there is mixed data. There was a negative one. Negative data is a case report of assistedly with physostigmine use in two peri-arrest TCA overdose patients, but we also have positive data out, of, out, out there as well that it shows it can decrease intubation and ICU emission when compared to other agents. And then when we had a larger study and evaluating our TCA overdose patients, um, assistedly only occurred in one, and that was when you had a co-ingestion of propanolol, which seems that it may be safer than we originally thought. But can you find it? Um, it's no longer being manufactured. They went out. They're no longer, they went out of business. Um, so that is one reason why we really don't have to consider it right now. Um, but that's just food for thought. But there has been, um, when we went through this back order, I'm sure you guys all thought about it. We were like, what do we do? What if it happens? And the big thing was like benzo, benzo, benzo. So benzos can still help us to a point. So don't be afraid to use your benzodiazepines, but there is case reports that are coming out. There is poison centers that have used rivastigmine. Um, Ryan and I were talking about it last night. They have been able to use it as well. You just have to be able to have the oral route of administration. So we do have alternatives if we need it. So prompt recognition and treatment can significantly reduce mortality. One thing we found out is EKG findings can really help guide therapy for these patients or determining severity of toxicity. Um, R in the AVR is a hallmark sign that a patient has at increased risk for ventricular arrhythmias and seizures. Um, do not administer physostigmine if the patient has um, increased risk factors for cardiac conduction disturbances or seizures. Our first line treatment option is still bicarb. Um, and then in patients with significant hypotension, if you have a bedside echo just handy, you can help you determine if you need to start with epi over norepinephrine. For further information on EK interpretation, please go to the following YouTube video. <laughs> and then I, I don't know if we want to open it for questions for this one, or do we want to keep going in questions at the end? Sorry. Closes it. Ozzy scratches his head. Whatever she's looking for, it isn't in there. 